0: Well, do we have uh, have any questions or yes? About
1: the precepts like mm-hmm. you talked a little bit about some some stuff about the precepts and I'm just wondering like, um, like when, someone, what do you, when someone is doing something that corresponds to the precept and asks you to do it how do you stand up for yourself and say no and be asserted and, or just walk away? How do you critically think about it, process it
0: and say no? So I, I think you're, you're, you're saying in a situation where somebody might ask you to do something that you think may not be uh, consistent with keeping the precept uh-huh. uh, well then you know yes you need to examine it you definitely need to decline to do something like that uh-huh. <laughs> when you say how um, you have to have the clarity in your own mind that allows you just to say no I think
1: it's
0: practice, right? What? I think it's practice. Uh, practice saying no? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that That is a very important skill to have, to be able to say no when things are... Uh, not in keeping with your ethics and your morals, and uh, uh, not good for you. Uh-huh. I I don't have a simple answer for you except that uh, uh, you need to learn how to do that. And if you find that you're not uh, that you're not doing that, uh-huh. you need to understand why you're not doing it. Uh, if it's, uh, i try to think why, why that might be. Is it someone might be tempted to do something because somebody else asks because they want to be liked or
2: accepted? Yeah, I,
3: I'm always afraid that someone else would get upset at me about
2: association with the right people it, it seems like that was what you were talking about that is a very yeah, good point If yeah. you yeah. so yeah. associate with bad people then naturally they're gonna encourage you to do all these things
0: yeah that's right if, if you find if you find anybody you find that is suggesting uh consistently that you do something that's uh, not in keeping with the precepts then you probably shouldn't associate with that person that is a very good point and maybe that's the way to look at it if you you know, if your concern is uh, having somebody not like you or not accept you or, or something like that, is just say, do I, how important is it to me to be liked and accepted by somebody who would ask me to do something like this? Uh-huh. And hopefully the answer you come up with is, it's not very important that you're better off not to associate with those people. Very good suggestion there, Michael. I think that's uh, probably strikes at the heart of it. Yeah, Thank you.
4: oh,
2: you're welcome. Um, but uh, I do have uh, other concerns because, you know, fundamentally, before we're enlightened, we have a lot of needs uh, for companionship, for confirmation of of, mm-hmm. of our character, you know, for comfort, for a feeling of safety. Mm-hmm. I can understand how it is. Uh, uh, hard to let go of uh, friends when we, we're not mm-hmm. um, approaching life today.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other alternative to letting go of friends is that you practice skillful means in uh, helping them to go from an unwholesome state of, uh, of uh, motivation to something that's more wholesome which you can't always do which is it can be a challenge and you won't always succeed doing it but but to continue to put yourself in a, in, in a situation of the company of people who are encouraging you to go in ways that are not good for you is, is obviously a mistake yeah, we really need to to change that and uh, there's, you know, there's not a shortage of
2: people in the world. Yeah. I love how many, many of my friends from my earlier years, uh, I just I just don't give my new cell phone number. <laughs> it's a good thing to have new cell phone members, so you kind of filter out some of the old friends <laughs> and then it's good to move every so often. <laughs> and now I don't have any bad friends. <laughs>
0: See, there you go. That's how it works. And, uh, and because there are a lot of very wonderful people in the world and a lot of them uh, have good virtue and practice the Dharma. And you want to find those people and you want to associate with them. And the, the others, uh, you may just have to accept that, that they're not amongst the people that you'll continue to associate with. But once again, there's not a shortage of people in the world. There's a lot of people out there who are going to be wonderful people to associate with. Yes? I was
4: wondering if you could talk about uh, subtle dullness. Mm -hmm. um, Because I'm concerned with, I mean, strong dullness seems pretty clear, but subtle dullness is something that I'm Mm -hmm. as far as my stages, you know, it's Mm -hmm. hard to determine what, what that is exactly well uh,
0: the most important thing in learning to deal with subtle dullness is learning to recognize it because it is subtle and basically uh, if you if you compare the state of mental clarity and the vividness of your perception uh, in the present moment with uh, what you have enjoyed in the past and you find that there's a difference, that it's it's less, then then you know that, that subtle dullness is present. There's been some decrease in the quality of your awareness and your mental alertness that's really what you need to go by there are some cues one of them uh... is uh... we've mentioned before that sometimes uh... you can uh... feel startled or shocked by a sudden noise and uh... that is very often a sign that uh, subtle dullness is present Um, the more focused your concentration is the more likely you are to be you know the deeper your concentration is the more likely you are to be surprised by uh, as a sudden sound and that's that's true but also the deeper your concentration is the more vulnerable you are to subtle dullness and uh, if you find that you you know, jerk, you're shocked, you're startled when there's sudden noises and things like that. That uh, That's often an indication that you're, not just that you have deep concentration, but that you have uh, an element of dullness that's in there as well. So, it has a positive side of being an indication of concentration, but it's also an indicator that you would benefit by increasing The level of your mindful awareness. It is an interesting thing that uh, the more fully aware that you are, the more difficult it is to startle you. Um, And this is one of those things that has been uh, observed in in, uh, actually some studies of meditators that were done a long, long time ago that experienced. experienced Buddhist meditators, uh, their EEGs uh, show uh, much less of a... a, uh, what what do they call it when you're... uh, no, it's... um, anyway, the startled response, the the, the surprise reaction. that uh, if, you know, if they're exposed to an unexpected loud noise, that uh, that you know, on the EEG it clearly registers that they're aware of it. It's not like they were just oblivious to it. So the, uh, their EEG shows shows a spike, but uh, other parts of the EEG that uh, usually are associated with being uh, startled or frightened don't don't show any response, and the meditators don't. You know, they don't jerk and things like that. So It's as though um, your awareness is so high that uh, even a sudden sound, uh, the mind recognizes it and uh, uh, isn't surprised by it. In that split second, it's already recognizing, accepting, and, and leaving it behind. Other ways that you can recognize subtle dullness. Um, There is a, a tendency when subtle dullness is present for there to be a very comfortable feeling in the body. But you can distinguish between that and the, there, there is uh, a stillness of the body with a great degree of uh, comfort that is a very positive sign and is associated with concentration. Uh, the difference between the two, how to describe it, the comfortableness associated with dullness is more like the, the, the warm, soft comfortableness you might feel in a comfortable bed. Whereas uh, there is a stillness in concentration that is actually the, the beginning of physical pliancy, so it's called physical pliancy, where uh, the feeling is you don't want to move the body. It feels pleasant, it feels still, but it has a certain lightness, uh, sort of an emptiness, more as if, if your body is... Um, this light, almost translucent, perhaps just a perhaps just a shell of the body, and it's pleasant and comfortable, absolutely. But it has that. It doesn't feel. It's uh, doesn't have that solid, warm feeling that uh, uh, dullness does. So, if you're sitting in meditation and you're feeling too comfortable, then it's good to. Uh, Examine your mind in terms of the the uh, clarity of your awareness. As a matter of fact, that's the other thing to do: is to just check in every now and then. You know, you're having a great meditation, staying with the breath, everything like that. Every now and then, just examine the quality of your awareness with that question: like, is this is this as sharp and clear as it was earlier? Is this as as my perception as vivid? as it has been in the past. After a while, you come to recognize subtle dullness. And subtle dullness is very easy to correct. When you recognize it, almost instantaneously, you just bring your focus back to the meditation object, and you brighten up your, your perception of it. And so it, you can get rid of it quite, quite easily. The challenge is just recognizing it greatest danger of subtle dullness is it can become habitual. You can get a habit of getting into that comfortable place and uh, becoming more and more dull and just staying there. And the problem is that your meditation won't progress. You'll just stay right there every time you sit down. You'll come to a state of concentration, body will feel really good, mind will settle in. And you can stay in that subtle dullness. Most of the time uh, if, you, uh, if you don't correct for subtle dullness, it's going to become strong dullness. You're going to start going into sleepiness. But over time, if you, uh, if you don't recognize the difference between subtle dullness and the goal of developing single-pointedness, you can train yourself to remain in a state of subtle dullness. And then that becomes your habitual way of practicing, and that's where you become stuck. So, we should probably add to the list of what are the ways you can detect subtle ailments. Well, uh, one is when you didn't detect it in time, it usually turns into strong ailments, and you start experiencing sleepiness. So. Hope that's helpful to you. Yeah.
1: Since the retreat is coming to an end, I would like to hear your uh, opinion on, you know, retreat—the importance of retreat, uh, concentrated meditation retreat like this one in our practice. I have uh, conflicted feelings towards it because um, I always feel every time I come to a retreat, I'm very motivated in the sense that yes. I put everything aside, I come here, I have great expectation. It has to have to get something out of it. Mm-hmm. And it's very counterproductive. So it's only after four or five days that I realize, oh, this is not what a meditation is supposed to be. So, so Ajahn Braw tells this joke that there are two kind of, kind of meditation. Second noble truth meditation, you know, craving, craving, craving. Mm-hmm. Third noble truth meditation is letting go. Letting go of
0: craving. Uh, I really agree with that, and uh, that uh, it seems like you have to have the uh, second noble truth kind before you can have the <laughs> third noble truth kind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. So conflicted feeling in mm-hmm. the sense that every retreat, no matter how I hate it at the time, mm-hmm. it's beneficial to me afterwards. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I think sort of a a map of retreats, the way they often tend to go, is that uh, you arrive at the retreat and uh, for the first day or two, uh, the main thing that happens is either you're falling asleep because you finally have a time to relax and you probably spent the last week making all kinds of arrangements so that you could disappear from the world and be out of contact for the retreat. So the first couple of days is a combination of a, a lot of uh, thoughts, like, you know, did I remember to turn off the coffee pot that I called so-and-so, stuff like that, and falling asleep. Uh, by the time you get to, you know, second, third, or fourth day, a lot of what you're experiencing is, uh, is pain, because... You know, the first day, uh, you uh, probably didn't experience much more pain than you usually do when you sit at home meditating. But by the second day, those little secret spots that always tend to create a problem, whether it's your knee or your your back or your shoulder or whatever, they start letting you know that, yeah, you maybe thought I didn't exist anymore, but I'm still there waiting and... You know, second, third, fourth day. You're getting past the sleepiness and you're not so distracted by ordinary things, but now there's a lot of pain. Then you sort of get to the stage where the thought is, We're already in the fifth day of the retreat and (laughs) I haven't really done anything more than I usually do when I meditate at home. You know? So that's
3: exactly happened to me.
0: Well, it's happened to me many times. I think it, it's, you know, it, it, in general, it's sort of the thing that tends to happen. So, no. But then, you know, and that's uh, that's the expectations and the craving and the pressure of you know and the doubt and everything kind of comes up. But it's after that that you really start to get some good results and you start to uh, experience some progress over. What your daily practice has been in the past, and uh, of course, at that problem, at that point, <clears throat> your problem is going to be in a shorter retreat that you don't have that many days left. And so you get as much benefit as you can out of it, and then you wish you had. I mean, I, I. It seems like no matter how long the retreat is, for me, uh, by uh, Two or three days before the end of the retreat, uh, I'm already starting to uh, feel like, oh, this, this retreat is just not long enough. You know, it's, uh, just uh, there's, there's so so much more wonderful practice that I could do if only it was another week. And then you get to the last day, and it's. Your motivation tends to start slipping off because you know, well, it's going to be over tomorrow anyway. Right? <laughs> um, so, in in general, it's from about the fifth day to the next to the last day when you—that's when you make all your progress. You know, so if you have if you have a ten day retreat, you've got a window there of about three or four days where you're going to get some really good practice in if you're in a three month retreat you know you've got a whole lot longer to work with so that's where longer retreats are really valuable Um, five six seven day retreats and and three day retreats um, they can be very helpful because they can uh, give you the opportunity to deal with certain specific kinds of problems that you've been encountering in your daily practice but they generally don't allow you to uh, to make a whole lot of really significant progress in your practice. So this is what we're doing here. This is this is right on, on the borderline. I mean, a, a two-week retreat would obviously be a lot better. The extra days are very valuable. But uh, there's no question that uh, you can make progress in a diligent daily practice. If you if you practice uh, one or especially two hours a day, and if you can maybe once a week or so uh, practice even longer, you can make steady progress without uh, outside of retreat in a daily practice setting. But there is no question, as well that. Uh, the retreat has the advantage of allowing you to reach a, a depth of concentration, to get past all the initial distractions, to get to the point where you don't need as much sleep, and to really move forward in a way that uh, it's going to take much, much longer in a daily practice. So there's no question of the value of retreats. Uh, and then the other aspect of retreats is that however much progress you have made then you go back to you go back to your regular life and you see that fading away I mean always at the end of the retreat is the determination I'm going to keep my practice up and you know I'm not going to to uh, lose any of the uh, of the concentration and mindful awareness that I developed in the retreat but the truth is that you are you know? <laughs> that's just the way it is when you go back to the world and you've got all your unanswered emails and you go back to work and your family and everything else it's going to start eroding but it's very important that you hold on to it as much of, uh, as much of it as you can for as long as you can yeah?
3: I like to share with everybody my experience because last year, I started to do this retreat business. Mm-hmm. So last year, I went to four times the retreat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's very bene- beneficial is that you have to determine, after you come back home, you have to make your priority mm-hmm. The what is important in your life. And uh, I think as soon as you make, make your priority, and if you value, practice Dharma, you will change your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. That happened to me. Mm-hmm. I, I used to be, she knows, I used to be very social, and very active person. I have lots of friends, I go to lots of you know, things. But uh, after I made the, my priority, I really cut down. I don't return email, I don't check my email that frequent. You know? mm-hmm. And then I cut down lots of activity. And I told my husband that I, this is important to me. I sit down, discuss with my husband, I tell him that this is important to me. So lots of uh, unnecessary family mm-hmm. gathering, I just don't show up. I show up the very important one. And then I'd be able to manage. Every day I give myself three to four, four hours to do meditation. Uh, I break two, uh, three to four times. In between the housework or I needed to go out to shopping, I managed to do that. Even for me, I have a husband and kids I need to take care. I think if I can do it, you can do
0: it. Well, thank you. That's, that's very true. That's very important. Right after the retreat, you know, you're going to have the strongest motivation. So that's the best time to make the changes in your life that are going to allow you to practice more. A week later the motivation won't be as strong but you know right away while the motivation is really strong you can and it is it's all a question of priority you have to look at all the things that are important in your life and decide where it fits you know and uh and then make the adjustments that uh, reflect that that priority i uh, i will add to that though uh it's a really good time maybe to resign from the board of directors of two or three of your favorite charities and corporations and things like that. It's not a good time to go home and say, well, I'm going to quit my job and leave my wife. i could be
2: a good thing, though. <laughs> no, no. no. It could be a good thing, no, not, for, not necessarily for everybody, but it could be good for certain people. Maybe, well, maybe their determination is so strong, yeah. they can really make something out of themselves.
0: Well, that's true. If, if you've been thinking of quitting your job for the last year anyway, that might be the right time to do it. <laughs> do
1: you think, uh, how about become a monastic?
0: <laughs> to become a monastic? Uh, the same thing. If it's a new idea that came up during meditation, I would give it more thought <laughs> rather than do it right away. But if it's something that you had given thought to previously and it's a direction you'd been moving, you come out of a retreat with a strong motivation to do that, well, then do that. It's a good idea.
2: That's, yeah. Yeah, it's a good time. Because, oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just a short comment. Uh, other than you, you I, think, I think you're the, the only example of a lay person who's, you know, who's very, very well established in a practice that, that uh, people, people can go to you for, for very good instructions. But, but most of the teachers out there, just about all of them are, are, are monks or nuns. So, so I, there's probably a relationship between people who practice that full time, you know, becoming a monastic. And, and success in the practice. Of course, you gave us a lot of hope. We, we see you having so much success. It's, it gives you know. It, it tells us that we can also succeed similarly.
0: Yes, and I want to do that. I want you to recognize that you can you can do that, but it will involve uh, sacrificing some other things in your life and it is a question of priority those other things stop to be important you know uh, and that's that's what I did I made I made choices because it was my greatest priority was to to practice the Dharma and so I I took all the steps that seemed appropriate to be able to do that and I will I, I encourage everyone, uh, all the lay practitioners that I meet, to, uh, to understand that, that there is there is no part of this dharma that a, a lay person can't achieve. A lay person can achieve the, the uh, deep jhanas. Genre, lay person can achieve the uh, stages of enlightenment. But the lay person that we're talking about is not the layperson who is spending all of their time doing the kinds of things that most people do. Uh, so, but I look at somebody like yourself, you're very, very dedicated, and uh, you make choices like when you have time off from, uh, from work, you choose to go on retreats or, or to go see meditation teachers and things like that. And, and of course, that's a big change. Most people, they have time off from work, and, you know, it's like, do I go to Cancun? Or, you know, they want to. Their orientation is, where do I go for relaxation and enjoyment and excitement and stimulation? So there's that shift in in priorities. If you have free time uh, in your day, do you watch television, or do you meditate, or read the Dharma? And that's that's the kind of shift that takes place. Hopefully, it'll take place naturally. The more you practice, and the more you study the Dharma, the more you want to practice, and the more you want to study the Dharma. Part of it is getting to the stage in your meditation practice where you really look forward to it. And of course, you really look forward to your meditation practice if it makes you feel good. If, if uh, there is uh, a combination of uh, insight occurring, so that you you know you feel like you're enjoying results of your practice, and uh, there is uh, joy and happiness arising in your practice, and uh, there's not. Uh, a lot of pain and, and distraction and falling asleep and the feeling like uh, you're putting in time and getting nowhere. So you get your practice to a certain point and it gets really easy to practice. You're looking forward to practice. you're always sort of thinking well uh, when's the next opportunity that I'm going to have that you know, can, can do some extra meditation? And the same thing with practicing the dharma i mean with uh, studying the dharma you know it's you're not interested in seeing the latest movie or reading a, a novel but when's your opportunity to to uh read read in the sutras or read what some teacher has to say on topic that you're interested in a lay person who lives in that way can achieve anything that a monastic can uh, Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, of all of the monastics in the world, uh, there are those that stand out because they have made practice their priority, and amongst those, some of those have become teachers, and and we learn a lot from that, and we go to see them. But all the rest of the monastics, what are they doing? Well, a lot of them, they're busy uh, running monasteries and organizing uh, events in the local communities and uh, doing fundraising and uh, setting up a, a library and you know, all this other stuff that's not that different from what most lay people are doing anyway. And so if you really look within the monastic community it's set up to support uh, the monastics in being able to devote their time to practice but it also creates all of these opportunities for the monastics to spend all their time doing all kinds of very mundane and very ordinary things as well. So uh, don't compare yourself in your situation as a lay person that unfavorably uh, as with a monastic, you know, a lot of the same choices are there. Uh, And they all come down to, what are your priorities? And so much of it is you have to to do enough to get to the point where the motivation is there, and the desire is there, and it becomes easy to do. Whether you're a monastic or whether you're a layperson, it's going to be the same thing. As a monastic, sure, you can go and meditate, but until you get to the point where your practice starts to be fulfilling and satisfying and has a momentum of its own, you are going to have a resistance to practice. And if something else comes up, there is going to be the temptation to do that instead. So, I think that probably in the future, I I think the future of Buddhism is going to involve involve a lot more in the way of lay people there's a, a wonderful tradition that goes back to the time of Buddha, uh, uh, where one day a week, actually in the time of the Buddha it was based on the quarters of the moon, but it still comes down to about once every seven days, and the way we structure things now, uh, the same day of the week, uh, is called Uposatha, and it's a day... When uh, at the time of the Buddha it was first set aside as a day when the bhikkhus would get together and they would recite the rules of the order and then later on the Buddha instructed the bhikkhus that this was a day when lay people uh, could come and the bhikkhus were to give them uh, instruction in the dharma and then uh, in a number of Theravadan countries, this has continued, and so uh, uh, lay Buddhists will go to a local monastery on a post day and they will spend time in meditation, and they will hear Dharma talks. It's a 24-hour period, sometimes they'll stay overnight. It still does take place, but it has it's something that has largely fallen away. It's not done nearly as commonly as it could be, and it's something that I would really like to see come to be instituted in uh, North America, because North America already has a tradition from the Christians and from the Jews of a Sabbath, of one day a week, that is set aside for religious practice. And I think North American Buddhists, it would be wonderful if that became much more commonly practiced, that... One day a week would be devoted entirely to practice and to uh, dharma talks and to, to reading. A great way for for uh, lay practitioners to really put some oomph behind the development of their practice. With a regular uposatha day practice, that could be a day when instead of meditating one or two hours a day, you might meditate three or four. Hours in the day, and it's also uh, can be combined with uh, study and other practices. So that's one suggestion that I would have for lay people. The other, uh, as I already mentioned, you have a job, uh, you have limited time uh, available, Uh, you have, if you have a, a family, that you need to you need to look at your life and structure it in such a way that you can do the do the practice. And for most lay people, that's going to mean uh, getting up earlier. Wonderful time, because everybody else is still asleep. They're not going to bother you. You get up earlier, you have the time to do the practice while your mind is fresh, before you have all these distractions present. Uh, of course, it's going to mean that you have to Go to bed earlier, but what do most people do after uh, say you know something like eight o'clock in the evening anyway they're entertaining themselves they're, they're visiting and engaging in idle talk or they're watching television or DVDs or they're reading novels or things like this. so what you're giving up to be able to to establish a practice period in your daily life? Not that it's not that much, and it's also something that's going to tend to become less and less important to you, anyway. And then there's then there's holiday and vacation times. You know, when you have when you have a vacation, um, you don't you don't always have to. Sometimes you have to go and visit family and relatives. That's that's an important thing to do, I think. And that's there's a certain degree of uh, obligation and responsibility in that. But at the same time, if there's anybody that you can make come to understand that you have a religious practice, a spiritual practice that's important in your life, it's going to be family. And so uh, part of part of organizing your life for an effective practice is going to be saying that of my vacation and and of my holiday time, you know, Thanksgiving, Easter break, uh, Christmas, so on and so forth. This is for the family, and that's always for the family. Uh, But this, this this is my chance to go on a longer retreat. This is my chance to do something more for myself. In that way, you can all achieve... The goals of the practice. I'm sorry about that. It's, it's
3: the kind of the, you answered my question. Mm-hmm. Since you mentioned that, uh, I'd like to have your uh, advice. Like uh, uh, recently, especially this year, after I involved in practice dharma, I feel like I lost the interest in uh, I used to love novel, movie, play. Mm-hmm. I have a group of artist friends, writer friends. Mm-hmm. We go to discuss, we watch a movie, we discuss. That sort of thing. But now, it seems for me that I lose the interest. They wanted to go to this play, that play, movie. I always say no. So I kind of lose these uh, friends. And uh, I, I want you to uh, give us some advice. You
0: know, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. That is a reality of it. That is a sacrifice or a change that you make. Uh, as you become more involved in the Dharma and practice, uh, a lot of your friends are going to find you totally boring and not interesting anymore. Exactly. And and the same thing, you're going to find them not interesting anymore. Yes, yes. Uh, Whereas at one time you used to love to sit down and get together and gossip out all your other friends who weren't there. And you won't want to do that anymore. You'll sit there and you know, I don't really want to hear this. <laughs> exactly. Or they'll talk about television shows. And did you see last night on? You know? And it's like for years, I had not the faintest idea what people were talking about, because I never watched television. Yeah. So, and I noticed how much time people spent talking about the television shows they watched, or the movies that they went to. And I wasn't interested. This is, this is going to happen to you the more you become involved in the Dharma you know, the more the people that you used to associate with, you're going to find that you don't have the same interests anymore. And uh, from your side, uh, you don't want to waste your time doing those kinds of things, because after all, you could be practicing or studying the Dharma or listening to a a Dharma talk. And from their side, you know, it's like they will say of you to other people, she's not really any fun anymore, I don't know, since she got involved in Buddhism, you know, she's turned into a total bore. Hardly see her anymore. And that's just, that's the way it is. You know, you've got to accept, that's going to happen. On the other hand, you'll have another kind of friend. You'll have You'll have the friends you meet at the Dharma talks you go to, and the friends that belong to your meditation group. And you'll have wonderful times with them. You'll get together with them and sit around the table, and you'll talk about you know emptiness and impermanence, and, yeah. you know. And uh, you know, have you have you heard this uh, teacher saying, "Oh, they got some new tapes out, a great talk." have you heard that. I'll lend yes. you my copy. You have a new kind of social structure and influence. Yes. But the worst part, and this is part of it too, is your family because. You can change friends, you can let the old friends go away
1: (laughs) and bring in the new friends.
0: (laughs) But your family, they're going to say the same thing too. They're going to say, you know, you're just not as much fun as you used to be. And that's something that that may be a little more painful to uh, accept, but it's true. By their standards, you know.
3: Yeah, my husband complained that that yeah. uh, he thinks I'm getting boring because I only <laughs> want to talk about the meaning of life and <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and that you know that happens and uh, sometimes it can mean that you drift apart or sometimes it means that after a while your partner becomes interested in you know and, and that's really good because then now you have. Now you have a Dharma friend who is also your life partner. It's more difficult with your children, you know, your, your children, you know, mom, you're no fun anymore, and it's like, that's hard to
4: take. <laughs> um,
0: but, who, whoever said that you could achieve the highest attainable goals without some sacrifice, I don't remember that being part of the deal. And in the going forth, it's much more dramatic than that. You're leaving your family entirely behind. <clears throat> you're, you're leaving your uh, father standing in the door with an angry scowl shaking his head while your mother's crying in the, in, in the yard and rubbing your hands together. And you're going off to take ordination and maybe never see them for four, five, six years, you know. That's what the going forth was about, leaving leaving family behind entirely, leaving everything behind. So, so uh, there's some sacrifice. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, the Buddha did teach a middle path, though. I mean, it, I think for me personally, it seems that I, need, you know, I have you know family, I have. If, if you got, you know, for example, my kids, there's no way that I would ever, you know, I, I think I would choose my kids over enlightenment, to be honest. And I feel like, uh, you know, it's not an impossibility to incorporate them into, you know, to teach them and to you know, make it part of your lifestyle to, you know, mm-hmm. to incorporate them into your practice. Mm-hmm
0: and that's that's uh, to choose your children over enlightenment that's where you are right now and that's fine uh, but I would even say one of the reasons that I think that late practice is so important in developing a really strong group of of uh, late practitioners who are dedicated enough that they succeed in achieving the the highest space possible is because they are lay people, because they have family, because they have neighbors, because they have co-workers. This, um, The Dharma as, as something that only a small, very tiny group of ever achieves the fruits of, is that's not what the world needs. That's not what's going to bring all beings to liberation. The Dharma has to permeate everywhere. Uh, and so that's why it's important that there are and come to be I what I what I would like to see maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now is many many people practicing the Dharma in a very serious and dedicated way and uh, everybody knows some people that they work with some neighbors have some people in their family that are dedicated lay practitioners and, and live, in in this way. The the effect is going to be that for some of your children, enlightenment is going to be more important than you. And that's going to be a good thing.
3: But but I figure that if we become a a Buddhist, Mm -hmm. if we become a better and better person, the people around us will notice. Exactly. And then Mm -hmm. we can kind of uh, make them think that uh, Buddhism is a great thing to do.
0: That's exactly right. That, and that's, that's what I was trying to say, so thank you, is that lay practitioners out there in the world, they're, they're not only going to be seen as lay practitioners, they're going to be seen as people practicing virtue, uh, people with uh, mindful awareness, people who are compassionate, people who are, are acting out of loving-kindness. They will be seen as people who are not uh, drawn to entertainment by uh, through through uh, violence and uh, some of the undesirable things. They'll be seen as superior people that other people will be attracted to emulate to become like. That's yeah. That's what we want to
1: see. Yes. Yeah, I have a question. Um, my husband is a Catholic, mm-hmm. um, and uh, well, he's a great person, for uh, Not 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, for people around. Um, I'm just wondering: is there anything I can get in common from you know different religion, and then uh, I I can, I I, can, I don't know something I can do. <laughs>
0: This is, uh, this is a very real challenge because, uh, yes, your husbands and wives and, and other family members and, and neighbors are going to already be uh, committed to other religious practices. In the case of Catholicism, there is a very strong contemplative movement in Catholicism, uh, it's called the Centering Prayer Movement uh, Father Keating and uh, some other uh, I, the, uh, their names escape me at the moment but they, that is something that is very Catholic but at the same time has so much in common with Buddhist meditation and contemplation that I think it's a way of finding a common ground I don't think everybody has to necessarily uh, take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha to to begin to actually practice the Dharma and enjoy the benefits. And in their highest form, I think every every one of the world's major spiritual paths, major religions, in its highest and most fully developed form has the same... Uh, many of the same goals and standards. And so, it's where, where the similarities are that the emphasis should be. And that's where you can find a common ground. So, the practice of, the practice of uh, virtue and the practice of meditation uh, is not really in conflict, as far as I know, with, with any other religious practice. When you start talking about uh, anatta, selflessness or no soul to a Christian or a Muslim or something like that, then it becomes really difficult. But you don't actually need, you don't need to enter that ground in order to have a lot in common.
1: more comes down to skillfulness how um, we um, interact with um family first they like have to have families who actually have several mm-hmm. interests in their practice and um, what they believe it's like a weird version of the Mahayana. Um, but it's to whatever to their interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, then some part of those suggested that uh, we're responsible to take care of our parents. Mm-hmm. So at some point, it's gonna yeah. come down to you. they had to live with me and had to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And so it'll just be, I guess, it'll be a big adjustment for both parts.
0: That's right. It will. My parents just moved in with us about three weeks ago. <laughs> Uh, we thought it would happen sooner and there would be more time to settle in before we left for this retreat so it's been very difficult because they got there and uh the house that they built wasn't finished and you know there's many they didn't get to telephone until yesterday so all this time i wasn't even able to you know having to get other people to come in and make sure that they're all right but uh, yeah just had had my parents move in it's going to make a big change but it's going to be a wonderful thing too and take care of them. They're in their uh, late eighties, and uh, yeah. it's it's part of what it is. Yeah. Yes.
2: Um, I, I have one one quick question and slightly slightly public question. That uh, out of the twelve hundred people that gathered, the twelve hundred Arahats that gathered for. The, for the for, for for the meeting with the Buddha, yeah. just out of curiosity, would you know are, are they like a mix of like uh, are they are they primarily monastic people? <laughs> because that's a that's kind of like a good indication of how successful people can be. If uh...
0: well, this is uh, you no know, actually as far as I know, uh, in the sutra that it refers to to that is there's, there's no way of knowing and. I would assume that a very large proportion of them would have been uh, bhikkhus. You know, just just because there were uh, like, literally thousands of bhikkhus that were uh, wandering around, and as many of them uh, at a time as could would tend to follow the Buddha wherever he went. Oh, okay, so, I, see. so I, I, I would guess that a lot of them were. But the more important point is, in the sutras, there are many, many references to lay people achieving the different stages of enlightenment, including becoming arahant. So, uh, I think that's the important thing. That if we go to the sutras, we find confirmation and reassurance that that uh, enlightenment, enlightenment to uh, the number of, of stream entrants that. Uh, Are clearly identified as lay people is as you would expect larger than the number of arhats, Uh, but there there are quite a few lay arhats that are specifically mentioned, and some are mentioned over and over again. So it's it's there's absolutely no question at all this is something that's uh, that's accessible uh, for a lay person.
1: I read somewhere it says that, I'm not sure if it's correct, it says when you reach the stage of Arahant, if you're a lay person, you either um, have to go forth, yeah, yeah. or you...
0: Yeah. Become well, a, first. Or become bhikkhu. Yes, that's right. There is yeah, there is this uh, this thing that, Yeah, and, and this does not come from the sutra or, or the Buddhas. But yes, there is this thing that has... Than uh, said for a long time that when you reach, uh, sometimes they say when you reach the stage of a non-returner, others say when you reach, you reach the stage of the arhat, they say that you have to become a bhikkhu within. Uh, uh, I've heard with some some say within 24 hours or you'll die, and others say that, that within 30 days or, or you'll die. But I mean this this is just one of those things.
2: Also, awesome. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> thing uh, if you're a late person, you cannot get arhat. Yes.
0: Uh, yes. Uh, that is that is one of the things. That is one it's of it's the. It's not true at all. That that's actually. one of the beliefs that's uh, circulated. But definitely, in the sutras, there are uh, lay people who are arhats. So okay. Therefore. Oh, definitely. Okay. Uh, so the rumors are
2: wrong.
0: Actually, one of the things that was circulated not that long ago uh, was that it was no longer possible for uh, people to become arhats in this world. Oh, that's right. There were certain certain places where that was a commonly held belief. Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, So you can't believe everything here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes? This is like
1: another topic. What's that? Uh, I, I just have a question. On a different topic? Yeah. Okay. Um... Do you know why sometimes we have energy like our chakras and our chakras? Like, Like sometimes I feel this energy here. And like why why do we like can't feel like energy like down our body and stuff? This
0: is this is something that is very commonly experienced in meditation practice is energy. You become aware of it, and become aware of it moving. And um, you know there there are different traditions and practices uh, over time that have spent a lot of time uh, studying and describing movements of energies. And when you compare these you find that there's a lot of similarities. So, the idea of chakras is something that comes from uh, the Indian, uh, East Indian description of uh, the movement of energy and energy centers. And you find is that it has its counterpart in uh, the description of chi. So, I think what this is doing is saying that this is a, a, a universal phenomenon that in certain kinds of states, we experience energy rising and that the way that energy manifests, the way that it seems to uh, collect and move, uh, that it uh, it has characteristics that have been designated by terms like chakras and uh, channels and in the Tibetan tradition that's spoken of as the winds, uh, the, the movement of the inner winds. So it's it's a phenomenon that is a part of cultivating concentration that it, it experienced. And uh, it, has, it has its own reality, and out of that reality, there's certain patterns that occur over and over again. And these have been described in terms of uh, chakras amongst a number of other ways. And so when you ask, why is it you sometimes have an experience of energy, and it seems to be associated with certain chakras. Um, that's why. It's, it's, it's one of the, what would you call it, I think, a, what would you call it, a side effect? Not really, because it actually plays a, a role in the development of concentration, but it's a part of it. It's just a, It's a normal part of it. Uh, what it actually means in scientific terms, well, we don't have an answer to that. And there are different philosophical systems who describe it and ascribe describe it in different ways, and likewise they ascribe different degrees of significance to it. And so uh, I'm not in a position to say whether which ones are right or wrong, or whether they're all right or they're all wrong or anything else. But they're out there and they're there, and they seem to be so consistent that. It seems to be a universal phenomenon with human beings that we have these kinds of experiences under certain kinds of cir-
2: circumstances. So. Yeah. Hi, I remember you mentioned that, that once returners still have the concept of continue, continuity, uh, what does it mean?
0: I, the, I, I'm sorry, I didn't catch all of what you said. Uh, you,
2: you mentioned that the, the uh, once-returner still has the, has the sense or the concept of uh, continuous, uh, continuity.
0: The once-returner has
2: a... Sense of self, right Like a like uh, clean to self. The, uh, the stream-wainer stream, uh, stream still has a sense of self and the once-returner still has the concept of continuousness.
4: Right. Uh, am I good. wrong or am I not? You you hear it. What, you hear it. Maybe uh, yeah, so yeah, I, it, it I forgot the, the, the
2: concept you mentioned. Thank uh, yes. you. remember?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: You mentioned that the stream winner still has the sense of self,
0: the stream runner does s- still have that sense of self,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, even though, even though they have had experience which prevents them from becoming a, a, attached to the, the belief in a personal self any any further. Um, the once returner. What's happened with the once-returner is that the, the strength of craving has been greatly diminished, and with the with the the, the diminishing of the strength of craving, there is also uh, that sense of, of of self is not as strong. I'm not sure what I might have said with regard to continuity. I can't. Uh, it's not maybe I'm, I'm wrong <laughs> <laughs>
2: I uh, don't know to... <laughs> are you talking about
1: the non-returner? Yeah, uh, uh, sensual cra- uh, craving in subtle form have all been destroyed uh, but there's an inherent self feeling as there's a separate entity there's a yeah, craving for existence that's what I wrote
2: down too. Yeah. still feel the separateness I don't recall the continuity you know, yeah. separate. But there is, a, yeah, for the
0: non-returner, there is still this sense of, a, of, a separate existence, and still a clinging to existence. So they're called a, a, uh, non-returner because uh, if they don't become an arhat before they die, that they won't return to this world, but rather they'll. Achieve uh, a final enlightenment from uh, a deva realm, but they still have a uh, a desire for uh, existence in uh, a, a uh, uh, material or fine material, uh, uh, fine material or immaterial. Not in the sense realm. They have no further desire for no no sense craving and no desire for existence in a sense realm. But they still have the desire for existence in the uh, fine material or the immaterial realm, which is what they would be reborn in. This is the only craving that they have left, is for uh, the the continuation of separate existence. Maybe that's the continuation of that. And then... You know, if you look at the uh, uh, the uh, what remains, the defilements that remain for a non-returner that disappear when they become an arhat. It said that they have conceit, and by conceit, uh, it doesn't mean that I am better than you, but it means that. Uh, the, the way it's stated in, in the sutras is the belief that I am better than you, that I'm the same as you, or that I am uh, less than you. what it's saying is it's it's still describing the uh, attachment to a separate existence I'm separate from you is really what it's saying, likewise, uh, the uh, desire for immaterial and uh, fine material existence. are are two more. And then there's restlessness and there's jealousy. These these are the last uh, uh, defilements or mental afflictions that uh, uh, the non-returner has and that are eliminated in in the arhat. But when you look at them, what they're really all about is this continued uh, sense of, and craving for continued separate existence. Okay. So I'm not sure if that's exactly what you were asking about, but that's what I can tell you and that uh, well, probably what I was talking about. Yeah.
3: So so you mean the non returner still have a jealousy?
0: Uh, yes, but it's it's a very refined and subtle form uh, so, right? yeah, it's, it's not
2: by, by the mundane person. Maybe. Yes,
0: it's not the kind of jealousy to the mundane person. But jealous, it's it's related to the attachment to a sense of being a separate entity, a separate existence. And so, as long as there is a sense of being a separate entity, there is the comes with it the sense of me and mine. And so they're not saying that this person is going to be a jealous and possessive person the way an ordinary person would be, but because they still have this sense of me and mine, that's what the jealousy is referring to. Oh. They still have an attachment to the sense of, you know, this is my role and this is my role. <laughs> They may be willing to give it away to you, but even as they give it away, it's still it's my bowl that I'm giving you. <laughs> oh, I see. I, I
3: saw that the, the uh, uh, stream uh, inter, is, uh, inter... Yeah, a stream winner is already break the, the concept of self.
0: The stream winner overcomes the belief in and attachment to the personal self but he still has the sense of, of separate selfhood. Oh.
1: There's,
0: still, there's still this inherent sense of being a self, even though there is the knowledge and understanding, the super mundane knowledge and understanding that there really is no self, even though he knows that he still feels like he's a self. Okay. This self
3: very stubborn oh.
0: that's right it is it, it absolutely is you know
2: so, so how could it possibly be that somebody have jealousy and not aversion because the natural reaction to jealousy is some level of aversion but you said the non has have, have no aversion at all you know it's like somebody it's like you know you know the 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 Arahad's husband uh, slept with somebody else and then there's some jealousy. Well, this is... There's no aversion. Well, the,
0: the way that... I mean, these two terms, conceit and jealousy, the way they are explained is that they're, they're not referring to the kind of conceit, that kind of jealousy and the kind of conceit that we normally think of. That The conceit of a non-returner is is the fact that he still has this, this sense of being a, a separate entity, even though it's not associated with any craving. Not for,
2: associated with any craving. It's
0: not associated with any sensual craving. It's only associated with the remaining craving for existence, as a sense of separate existence and as a craving for separate existence. That's what he, That's what conceit refers to. And because there is a sense of separate existence and, and a craving for separate existence, there is also, comes along with that, the sense of me and mine. And so there may not be uh, uh, attachment, uh, uh, desire and aversion for material things, because there's no longer the craving for sensual things. But there is still the sense of, of, of mindness that... Even though I'm not attached to this and I'm willing to give it to you, it still feels like mine. You know, that's I what conceit okay. That's what uh, not yeah. can conce- That's what jealousy is referring to. It's not referring to the, s- <laughs> the strong jealousy associated I see. with aversion and, uh, I see. I see. and uh, it's, desire.
2: It's not the jealousy all I had in mind. Okay.
0: Yeah, it's uh, that's the way it's explained. Because yes, otherwise it becomes really confusing. Well. So if somebody is on the verge of becoming an arhat, becoming a Buddha, yet, you know, they still feel jealousy. And, and, and see? So it doesn't make much sense. But this is, the, is how it's explained. So, thank you. Yeah. Time for lunch. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope this uh, final afternoon of practice goes really well for you, and we'll talk tonight.